last Friday was Jerusalem Day. It honors the day that Jerusalem came under, the entire city became under Jewish hands for the first time in almost 2,000 years during the Six-Day War back in 1967. I spoke a few words about Jerusalem Day, but I felt that I really didn't say enough. So I want the uh, listeners to forgive me, but I want to say a few more words about Jerusalem because it's important. The historian, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, uh, wrote a book in which he discussed Jerusalem, and he said the following. In 1838, Jerusalem was this desolate and forsaken, a remote provincial town of the Ottoman Empire, which pilgrims visited at their peril. By 1898, 50 years later, 60 years later, it had been transformed into a modern city in which six European powers Russia, France, Britain, Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy had established their political presence. Its holy sites had been rebuilt by 1898. Systematic archaeological excavations had begun. New churches, monasteries, convents, synagogues, and mosques proliferated. Population had shriveled, and immigrants hurried to its new prosperity and its new safety. That's what he wrote. Eventually, there was a uh, a neighborhood uh, that was uh, purchased um, in uh, right near where I live. It was purchased by uh, Sir Montes Montefiore, and. Uh, he put up cottages there, and he put up in a windmill that stands out in the complex. I can see it when I walk out of my house. He first bought the land in 1855 with money from the estate of a wealthy New Orleans philanthropist named Judith Turo. In 1857, Montefiore left his mark on the neighborhood located outside Jerusalem's old city by the windmill, and it became operational in 1860, and the idea was to create a, uh, a place to um, make uh, bread and things of that nature and stop the people from there just be living off handouts. That was his goal. The failure of Jewish forces to capture the old city from the Arabs in the war in 1948 was overshadowed by the Jewish victory in the War of Independence. The early years of Israel were a struggle with the Arabs, and uh, it, it was uh, really a tough time. So the, at that time, what's called the Mandelbaum Gate was accepted as a Jordanian barrier to the Jewish holy sites. Burial stones from the Mount of Olives were used to pave roads and synagogues in the old city, and much of the cemeteries were destroyed. The, uh, but Jews had to be thankful they had gained 
and in this war instigated by the Arabs, territory that the United Nations would never have given them. So it's interesting how the reality of Israel, after the horrors of the Second World War and genocide and the Holocaust, was a testament to the the survival of the Jewish people. So neighborhoods like Yamin Moshe, which is a five-minute walk from my house, were witness to Jewish revival in Jerusalem and throughout Israel. So it's really interesting. The day celebrating the Jewish reunification of Jerusalem engendered more ambiguity ambiguity in Israel and the diaspora than Israel's celebration of independence. The entire country, the whole nation of Israel celebrates Israel Independence Day, but Jerusalem Day is only celebrated in Jerusalem. So that, that's sort of odd, and it, it really disturbs me that, that this is so. However, be that as it may, the, uh, I want to say a few facts about Israel that people should know. First of all, Jerusalem is now Israel's largest city. There are 984,500 residents which is roughly 10% of Israel's entire population. The 60, a little over 60% of the city's population is Jewish uh, or non-Arab. Roughly 40% was Arab, and another 30% of the city's residents are what we call Haredim, which are ultra-Orthodox. And uh, so the ultra-Orthodox comprise a very large part of the city's population, which is uh, of interest, I think. The the, an estimated 44% of the capital's residents report having difficulties in making a living. They can't cover their monthly expenses. Uh, the, uh, that is 78%, 44% of the people, of which about 25% are uh, Jews and the rest are Arabs, they can't cover their monthly exp- uh, expenses. The, during the, the last year, the co- capital's population grew by about 14,000 people, but more people left the city than moved to it. There were, so where did the numbers come from? There were close to 21,000 births, and uh, about 8,500 people arrived. Well, 15,000, a little more than 15,000 left the city. So where did the new arrivals come from? They come primarily from Tel Aviv, B'nai Brak, and Beit Shemesh. Most who left moved to Beit Shemesh, Tel Aviv, and Givat Zev. Now, another, other, some interesting facts. Children under 15 
account for 33% of the city's population, while only 9.6% are over the age of 64. So what does that mean? It means Jerusalem is a relatively young city compared with other municipalities in Israel. In, in the years 2021-2022, a little bit more than 85,000 children study in Hebrew elementary schools in the city, about 50,000 uh, in the Haredi schools, 15,000 religious public schools, and 12,000 in secular public schools. So Jerusalem is a young city with a lot of education. The, interesting enough, this, this shows something sort of negative. The percentage of 12th grade students eligible for matriculation certificates is 39% compared to the national average of 71%, which means that the kids in Israel, when they, even when they finish high school, are not as educated as the kids in the rest of the country. I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Haredi education doesn't provide the kind of background that's required to take these matriculation examinations. The, the average age, by the way, of the first marriage in Jerusalem is slightly lower than the national average. The birth rate in Jerusalem is 3.86 children per family, higher than the national average of three. And it is higher among Jews and non-Arabs than among Arabs, which is very interesting. One of the things that has happened in Israel is the fact that the, uh, the birth rate among Arabs has decreased. It's down, down to three, little like 3.09, and the non-Arabs and the Jews are like 4.39. I think it's probably one of the few places in the world where the Jewish birth rate is so high. On the average, Jerusalem women have their first child at almost the age of 25, which is three years earlier than elsewhere in the country. But only half of the city's population it's part of the workforce, compared to almost two-thirds across the country. That is not good. Only half of people, the people are part of the workforce. The, uh, it, 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 that's not good, really not good. And it, it's something, I'm, I'm, um, I'm reciting these statistics so that the listeners will have an idea of what's happening here is... Uh, here in Jerusalem. Uh, it, it's interesting also, we have universities here in Jerusalem. About half of the university students, there are 44,000 university students and college students here in Jerusalem. Of, of the 44,000, uh, half are from the area. There are 19,400 students at Hebrew University. 18,408 academic colleges and 6,300 at five colleges for education. The, so in terms of education, Jerusalem is really a, a good city. 
the uh, by the way <coughs> another excuse me another interesting number in year 2020 it's the last year we have numbers for about 2,000 Jerusalem residents stood for trial for criminal offenses of which 1,600 or 80% were convicted. In, in mid-2022, there were 240,000 residential apartments in Jerusalem, more than, a little bit more than in 2021. So, the, the, uh, it's, Jerusalem is a city that was a backwater until the Six-Day War. And now it is growing at a tremendous rate. There, it, there's a record uh, almost 8,000 building permits were issued for new apartments. And um, more than 40% of the garbage in Jerusalem is recycled. And so they, they did a survey, they asked the Jerusalemites whether they're satisfied with the amount of green space near their homes and 43% said they were satisfied. <clears throat> and um, it's very interesting. The, the complaints about lack of parking space near their homes was made by almost 70% of Jerusalem residents. And the, uh, it's interesting that these are, the, why am I boring the listeners with all these statistics? Because keep in mind, that until 1967, Jerusalem was a backwater here. It was on the border. Part of the city was under Jordanian control. Today, it is the most populous city in Israel with all these signs of, of growing uh, population, university students and so forth. So the, uh, the, the, the it was, it's been part of the struggle. Jerusalem is the hot point in the struggle with the Arab nations. And over the years, we have managed to make it into really one of the most wonderful places in the city. The, uh, it, it's interesting also. You have to keep something else in mind about Jerusalem. For the Arab invaders of Israel back in 1948, this was all about a holy war against the Jews. As for the Arabs in the British mandate, they were a secondary priority. Religion played an important role for the enemies of Israel in the War of Independence. The Muslim Arabs simply did not want to see a Jewish city or a Jewish state arise in an area which they felt belonged uh, to them. The, uh, it, it, the, the, if Jews in America and Israel are, are uncomfortable with the independence that was challenged by the Arabs for religious reason, and if they don't know the history or of interaction between Muslims and Jews and the impact statehood made on the Arab world, they'll never understand why rockets are being fired from Gaza Strip by Hamas into Jewish territory within the so-called Green Line. Last year on 
Israel uh, on Jerusalem Day, we attended a parade and we had to run home because uh, rockets had been fired from Gaza. The fact that the Jewish state has made Jerusalem part of it is something that really disturbs the Arabs. In 1948, the first Arab-Israeli war, uh, a, it was the name of a book written by a historian named Benny Morris. And Benny Morris is sort of an anti-Zionist. And he condemns the Israeli Prime Minister Ben-Gurion because, as he's put it, Ben-Gurion failed fully to appreciate the depth of the Arab dislike of the Jewish presence in Palestine, a dislike anchored for in centuries of Islamic Judeophobia with deep religious and historic roots. The Jewish rejection of the Prophet Muhammad is embedded in the Quran and is etched in the psyche of those brought up on, on the Quran. As the Muslim Brotherhood put it in 1948, Jews are the historic enemies of Muslims and carry the greatest hatred for the nation of Muhammad. So the, the struggle back in 1948 by the Arabs to keep the state of Israel from coming into being was not simply a political uh, conflict. The, that's how the Israelis looked upon it. But the Arabs looked upon it then as a religious conflict. There's a big difference because political conflicts can be settled much more readily than religious conflicts. Now what's happened is and many of the Arab nations have begun to realize that they no longer have a religious conflict with Israel. And they, many of them don't even have a political conflict with Israel. That is why many of them are recognizing Israel. It, you have to really look deeply into the, the psychology and the philosophy, uh, if you will, of the Muslim nations around us. Why did they try to destroy Israel when Israel first came into being? And why they're essentially coming to live with the existence of Israel? It could be argued, of course, that like, like much of the Western world, perhaps the Arab world is becoming less religious. <laughs> and, they, and, and now politics uh, takes precedence primacy over religion. I don't know. I'm not a, an expert in that field. But the, what, I, what I felt I had to do with this part of the program, because I felt I hadn't done enough last week, is talk about Jerusalem, what it has become, and what hopefully it will become even greater uh, in the future. And uh, essentially, as I said a moment ago, it appears uh, that the conflict with the Muslim nations has uh, turned away from a religious conflict. It could be because many of the Muslim nations are not as religious as they used to be. That could be. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I'm just, this is conjecture on my part. 
But right now, we're living safely, thank God, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem may pass without a uh, too much problem. A hundred thousand people uh, celebrated here in Jerusalem. They danced in the main streets. They went into the old city, and there was no major problem. And that in itself is a form of victory. So this year's Jerusalem Day was a high point. And that's, that's what I really wanted to put the emphasis on. And that is why, although I didn't say enough about Jerusalem last week, I want to just repeat this much this week for listeners to know that things are going well in Jerusalem at the moment. They should not help us and they should only continue. I'll be back after first uh, portion of my program this week, I spoke a lot about Jerusalem, and there's so much to say about Jerusalem that I could devote an entire program, or even more than one program, to Jerusalem. But there's one more thing I want to say about the city, and then I'll drop the topic. And the one more thing I want to say has to do with the fact that a lot of countries, most countries who have embassies in Israel, have the embassies in Tel Aviv. Most countries have their embassies in the capital of the city for which they want to be, in which they want to be represented. Interesting enough, in Israel, the most of the countries who recognize Israel do not recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Now, uh, the, the foreign, our foreign minister, a fellow named uh, Eli Cohen, said that he set a goal to double the number of countries with embassies in Jerusalem. Now, four states have already moved their embassies to this capital. Uh, the uh, the, 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 there is a big American embassy here in Jerusalem. That is something that President Trump did. It's about a mile away from my house. The, uh, the, it, it, there are rumors that a European Union member state plans to break with the rest of the bloc in the coming months to open an embassy in Jerusalem. This is according to our foreign ministry. It doesn't mention the names of all the countries. Of the European Union states, Czechia, Hungary, Italy, and Slovakia have diplomatic offices in Jerusalem that could easily be converted into embassies. And there are persistent reports 
then Hungary will be the one to make the move. But uh, its ambassador has neither confirmed or denied it. There are 10 other countries with diplomatic offices in Jerusalem, not embassies, diplomatic offices. And there are other countries, particularly in Africa, made promises to move their embassies to Jerusalem in the next years. They're doing this following the lead that was made by the, the Americans by actually moving their embassy here. So as part of this effort, the foreign ministry held a new ceremony for Jerusalem Day, which celebrates the reunification of the eternal capital of Jewish people. The flags of the United States, Guatemala, Honduras, and Kosovo were raised to honor them for choosing to move their embassies to Jerusalem. So of the Western nations, the really the only one, the major nations, the only one was the United States. So the, our foreign minister said, I call on the rest of the countries to open their embassies in Jerusalem. Not only should all the embassies in Jerusalem move to Jerusalem, but the countries whose primary missions remain in Tel Aviv uh, should be reminded of the absurdity of their location. Jerusalem has been the capital of the Jewish people for millennia, a site of pilgrimage and locus of prayer for Jews from around the world, even, even during these 2,000 years of exile. Even if one does not accept religious arguments, there are overwhelming archaeological evidence of thousands of years of Jewish life in the city. Now, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas absurdly claimed at the UN Nakba Day event this week, last week, that there's no proof of a Jewish connection in the old city of Jerusalem. Two days later, the Antiquities Authority of, of Israel announced the discovery of a Second Temple era receipt on the pilgrimage road in Jerusalem which connects the city of David to the Temple Mount 2,000 years ago. And it's just one more of many pieces of evidence that the Jews have a historic claim to the city. It's not just that the Jews say that we have a claim, but the archaeological evidence shows that we have a claim. The modern state of Israel made its capital very clear from its inception. It moved the Constituent Assembly which was later renamed the Knesset, from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem in 1949, within a year after the state came into being. Since then, Jerusalem has been the seat of government, the prime minister's office, the Knesset, the Supreme Court, the, the president's residence, which is about less than a mile from where I live, the prime minister's office, which is also less than a mile from where I live, and most other government ministries. Ambassadors of all the countries make their way to Jerusalem to present their credentials to the president at his residence in Jerusalem. Uh, but they pretend that Tel Aviv is their capital. Now, they may argue that Jerusalem is a city in dispute, and they don't want to move embassies until the border between Israel and the Palestinians is finalized. Yet, 
At the same time, they make a distinction between the eastern and western parts of the city, with the east being predominantly Arab and the west predominantly Jewish. Nine countries have consulate generals in Jerusalem, which, despite being located in the in uh, what what the UN called a separate area, a corpus separat- separatum, the the, uh, the these these consul- consulates here essentially serve the Palestinian population, so they don't seem to see the con- contradiction between arguing Israel's capital cannot be Jerusalem until there is a final settlement with the Palestinians, and treating the city as though it already contains the Palestinian capital, because these consulates are only essentially to the Arab population. So, the somehow in their thinking, Israel doesn't currently deserve any part of the city. Now, people should come to terms with reality. No country has the right to tell another country where its capital is. Israel's capital is not Tel Aviv. It is and has always been Jerusalem, and we have the archaeological evidence, if you need it, to prove it. Something I didn't know the city in the world can claim. We have thousands of years of evidence that this is David's capital. And therefore, all the embassy should be in Jerusalem. Not to do so is really, I don't want to say foolish, it's, some, it's a slap in the face of the state of Israel. We declare Jerusalem as is our capital. That's where the embassies should be. Embassies are in the country's capital. At this point, I think I have to apologize to the listeners. Uh, I said in the first portion of the program that I was only going to talk about Jerusalem uh, uh, during that segment of the program. But the truth of the matter is, I think I'm carried away by the events last Friday, Jerusalem Day, when you see all these uh, thousands, tens of thousands of people marching in the new city and marching to the old city, it can't help but move move you. So the so uh, I I, be, I got into a Jerusalem mood. The uh, you have to keep in mind the when discussing United Jerusalem, the question becomes, what constitutes Jerusalem? The, the 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 old city, the city of David, which is which is historically that. If you break it down further and ask different parts of the city, there are, there are uh, Arab refugee camps there, Palestinian refugee camps. So the the uh, it, it's a t- it's a very difficult city. Israelis are attached to parts of Israel, Jerusalem taken in the Six Day War. That's the old city, the Temple Mount, the Jewish Quarter, the Mount of Olives, the city of David, but uh, much less the places incorporated after that war, uh, like Shuafat, which is a refugee camp, and Umtuba. These are places also within walking distance from where I live. So you have to admit that Jerusalem's are not uh, very uh, excited about these places being part of the city. The, the late Ronnie uh, uh, Ellenblum was a professor of geography 
of the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and uh, he, he made a comment, which I quote, he said, Jerusalem is not just a city, it's a symbol, an icon. Where does an icon end? So that's actually a very pertinent question. Over the last century, what has been defined as Jerusalem has grown enormously. Biblical Jerusalem encompassed the Temple Mount and the City of David. During the first and second temple periods, the city grew, and it actually reached its peak during the second temple period uh, under a king named Herod Agrippus, who was the grandson of the original Herod. Ottoman Jerusalem was the old city and some neighbors outside it. Immediately after the 1967 war, Israel annexed East Jerusalem and expanded the city's limits. Overnight, it went from an area of like 44 square kilometers, including East Jerusalem, that was under Jordanian control, to 114 square kilometers. So interesting, the Babylonian Talmud discussed the area of Jerusalem, and there's a discussion there uh, where what part of the city is holy. The uh, in addition, Jerusalem went from having six Palestinian villages inside its municipal boundaries before the Six-Day War, and now we have 28 at Palestinian villages. So the, uh, there are many reasons the municipal borders of Jerusalem were extended after the war. So the city hall of Jerusalem is responsible for those Arab areas also. It, it, so why why did they expand the, the territorial limits of Jerusalem? Well, first of all, uh, they wanted to be able to build Jerusalem, but to do so, more area was needed. The Jewish neighbors today, if you come and visit uh, Jerusalem, there's Ramot, Piskat Zev, Har Gilo, Frencho, and others, the lands that were annexed after 1967. Those busy neighborhoods today were empty. There were empty fields and hills at the time of the Six-Day War. And all these places were annexed after the war and built upon. The land was needed to build for Jews, but in the process, many Palestinians were also incorporated with the percentage of Arabs in Jerusalem under Israel control, going for around 1% in 1966, to 26% after the war, and now it's like 39%. Today, there are like 340,000 Arabs in East Jerusalem, where an independent city would be far the largest Arab country, Arab town in the country. It's interesting. In Israel, there's a city called Nazareth, which is really an Arab city. It's an Israeli-Arab city. There are 80,000 Israeli Arabs living there. But there are 340,000 Arabs in Jerusalem. So, so it's true that strategic reasons were also involved in the decision so, to so drastically expand Jerusalem's territory after the Six-Day War because they wanted to include the mountain ridges surrounding the city uh, and, and to protect the city. Also, there was a desire to take in areas that were once owned by Jews and that were kicked out 
by the Jordanians, like Neve Yaakov, which is the very northern part of Jerusalem. It's almost in the city of Ramallah. And also Atarot, where the old British airport was located. Uh, I had occasion to go to a doctor in uh, Neve Yaakov, and it was a very, very long ride, including the train ride, followed by two buses. So the city is really big. See, uh, the, the, so another historic decision at the time, it's 1967, had to do with administration of the holy sites. Israel would have sovereignty, but administration would be in the hands of each religious group. That is why, for example, uh, the... Uh, the Temple Mount is under the uh, administration of the government of Jordan, of all things. That is, so these decisions to annex large areas to the city and to put administration of the holy sites in the hands of the respective religions, all these decisions were made in the immediate aftermath, aftermath of the Six-Day War. So what's happened since then? Well, we're 56 years later, and that decision to allow the administration of the holy sites in the hands of the respective religions have reverber reverberated both for good and for bad down to this very day. Jerusalem is a, an extremely complicated city, perhaps the most complicated, complicated city in the world. There is a time... When I was young, the, the most complicated city in the world was Berlin. It was divided into uh, the Russian zone, the French zone, uh, the American zone, and the British zone. And it was a complicated city. And if you check out your history, you see there was a lot of things going on at that time, including the famous Berlin airlift when the Soviets closed off the city and you couldn't get there by road. So Berlin was a complicated city, and the problem of Berlin has been resolved. There's no longer an East Germany and a West Germany. There's United Germany, and uh, Berlin is the capital of that United Germany. Now we have uh, Jerusalem, which is we feel to be part of a united Israel. But there are some people who simply don't go along with what we believe. So... Uh, so 56 years ago, the Jerusalem, Israel's eternal, undivided capital, is what it is today. So uh, it's a problem. 50 years after Israel was, was one East Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, and then uh, they kicked out uh, Jordan's King Hussein, uh, after, by the way, after the Israelis asked King Hussein to stay out of the war, so uh, the there is a Jewish connection to the city historically. There is now some Holocaust denial. There's revisionism, and there's Temple Mount denial, and uh, there's been an attempt, particularly by the Palestinian Authority to erase any need or right for a Jewish presence anywhere in this corner of the world. If the Holocaust did not happen, or not at the scope commonly believed, there's no reason for a safe haven for Jews. 
And if there were no temples on the Temple Mount, then even if the Jews needed safe refuges, did not have to be Israel. According to the, the Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, that uh, that the British had no right to write the Balfour Declaration in 1917. According to him, he said that Britain wanted to get rid of his Jews, and so uh, that's why he gave them Palestine. So according to him, they could, if the Britain wanted to get rid of all the Jews they had picked up after the war, they could have found another island somewhere else. Now, the the this is just one of the ways in which Jerusalem which is Israel's most Judaism's most holy city, and the third holiest city in Islam, epitomizes the Israeli Arab conflict. Interesting, Hamas fired rockets toward the capital in Jerusalem date in 2021 and threatened to do the same this year. Why? Because Jerusalem Day and the annual flag march with all its in-your-face demonstrativeness is a tangible display of Jewish sovereignty in a city which Abbas and others believe that Jews have no historic connection to. Anyhow, Jerusalem is the eternal capital of the city of Israel. And now I promise the listeners, I, I, at the end of part one of this program this week, I said I wouldn't talk about Jerusalem anymore, but I, I'm still caught up in the... Uh, enthusiasm and the effect of Jerusalem Day last Friday. So I did another part of the program. My apologies to the listeners and uh, for the rest of the program. I won't talk about Jerusalem anymore. Thanks for this. I'll be back in Jerusalem Day only comes once a year, I feel I must say a few more words about it. Another lesson to be learned from Jerusalem Day is that Israel not be overly fearful what the terrorist organizations are saying. These organizations like Hamas are trying to transform Jerusalem Day into a day that Israel will be afraid of. Suddenly, the number of days on the calendar have turned into highly sensitive days prone to violence has increased on Jerusalem Day. Let's think about some of these so-called days that are sources of Arab violence. First of all, there's something which a lot of people have forgotten, which is March 30th, which is called Land Day. That goes all the way back to 1976, when six Arabs were killed during violent protest over land expropriation 
in the, in the north part of the country to build Jewish communities. This is like 47 years ago, and it was a big deal at the time. And for years, it was a day to be dreaded because of often violent disturbances. Then, more and more days appeared on the calendar when Israelis were told to beware of violence. For example, the intermediary days of Passover, the intermediary days of uh, Sukkot, along with the holiday of Shavuot, which is coming out now, these were all marked as sensitive because these days tens of thousands of Jews went to the Western Wall and some even went to the Temple Mount. And they were afraid that this somehow the very presence of the Jews would incite violence. Then came the day commemorating what they called Nakba Day. What's Nakba? That is Israel Independence Day, May 15th. And the Nakba is Israel's Naksa, actually. There's Nakba and Naksa. Nakba is the tragedy of Israel's independence day. That's May 15th. And the Naksa is Israel's victory in the Six-Day War that began on June 5th. So security forces were extra, extra vigilant on all these dates and generated a degree of tension among the population. Now, over the last few years, something has contributed more to that. <clears throat> the entire month of Ramadan was earmarked as a sensitive time marked by an uptick in terror. Now, Ramadan is one month of the 12 months of the uh, Muslim year. The Muslims have a... Uh, 12th month year, uh, so that the that Ramadan, the holy month, moves around to different times every year. Uh, the Jews, for example, have a leap year, so every now and then we have an extra month. This is calculated in order to make sure that Passover, Pesach, comes out in the spring. But the uh, Muslims don't have that. They have 12 months. So since they're 12, a, uh, um, it's according to the lunar calendar, and they 12 months at a corner, corner, according to the lunar calendar, shorter uh, than the uh, solar calendar. So the Ramadan moves around during the course of the years. Now, the newest thing is Jerusalem Day. Now, once Hamas threatened to fire rockets on Israel, which it did in 2021, which I remember we were in Jerusalem celebrating Jerusalem Day, suddenly we were told to head for the shelters because the Arabs were firing from Gaza. Uh, in other words, and on Jerusalem Day, they, they threaten every year they're going ahead and do something bad for the Jews. Even those people who might prefer a different route to reduce friction so the march would not be perceived, the, there's a march uh, every year on Jerusalem Day to the Old City. There are people who say, no, you shouldn't march because that'll, that'll set the Arabs off. 
But Jerusalem Day marks Israel's 1967 victory. Now, they, maybe they could select a different route, but they, because of the threat of uh, uh, Arab action, they don't want to take a, uh, a, another route. The reason is simple. If they did, Israel would be seen as caving in to Hamas's threats, which has set a very bad precedent. The, matter, the truth of the matter is, is that if you really think about there's no reason that we should get nervous every time Hamas or any other terrorist group issues a threat. Likewise, Hamas ensured that the flag march this year would proceed along its traditional route once it issued threats against the Jerusalem Day celebration. They had to threat because otherwise that would project a weakness. And Israel cannot allow the threat to affect the march because that would project a weakness on our part. So Israel went ahead with the march as planned, and, and Hamas's rhetoric proved to be nothing, was empty. So it is true that Israel's enemies are engaging in a psychological warfare. They're using social media and traditional media to try and strike fear into the hearts of, of Israelis. They want to create a perception that somehow a noose is tight, tightening around the state of Israel and that Israeli opponents, and with Iran's help, are just getting stronger and stronger. The Israeli public constantly hears how Hamas is getting more powerful Hezbollah's capabilities are getting much more advanced, that's true, and how Iran's various regional proxies are getting bigger and better armed, that's all true. But it is not as if everyone's capabilities are improving, and Israel is just sitting on its hands. On the contrary, as Hezbollah and Hamas acquire more lethal weapons, Israel is developing the tools to deal with those weapons. Hezbollah engaged in some of that psycho psychological warfare last week. They were holding maneuvers in South Lebanon on the anniversary of Israel's 2000 uh, withdrawal from Lebanon, and they invited the foreign media to cover it. They had missiles and drones and armored vehicles. They were all, all on display, and the media's job was to broadcast to strike fear into the hearts of the Israelis. It's the same psychological warfare used by Hamas and Islamic Jihad that they can wreak, wreak, wreak havoc with their rockets. It is true, but Israel has the wherewithal to hit back and defend itself. That, too, is something of which it is worth reminding the Israeli public. Hamas, with all his bluster, knew that if it were to fire rockets at Jerusalem because of the flag march on Jerusalem Day, Israel would hit it back really hard. So Israel went ahead with the flag march, and Hamas held its fire. This is also true of Hezbollah. Their threats and displays of force need to be taken in stride. Israel is not helpless in the face of their threats, thank God, 
and therefore need not allow their threats to lead to Israel to be frightened or to dictate Israel's policies, especially regarding what is and what is not permissible in Jerusalem, which our, is our capital, our eternal capital. <clears throat> and then I want to say just one more thing, which uh, information which I came across after Jerusalem Day, but I think it's important. According to a statement on behalf of Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Ministry, the government approved a five-year investment program, which includes various projects to be carried out to strengthen the city in the fields of academia, employment, and tourism, all important fields. Also, budgets will be invested in construction and development operations of the Western Wall Plaza and the Western Wall Tunnels, including the excavation and preservation of archaeological findings, upgrading infrastructure and transportation services, as well as expanding educational activities for students, immigrants, and soldiers. A special meeting took place in honor of Jerusalem Day, and by invitation of Jerusalem Affairs and Heritage Minister, there is one in the government. His name is Mayor Porish. By the way, uh, about a month or two ago, I uh, visited the excavations under the Western Wall, something that wasn't available five years ago. And it's really something to see. I really recommend that to all visitors to Jerusalem. They're discovering levels and layers of previous life here in Jerusalem. So what they're trying to do now is to improve local international tourism. And they want to develop the physical infrastructure, including improving traffic and accessibility to the old city. To the old city. They want to improve traffic in general and business development, develop an open space in national parks while preserving nature and other projects. In other words, the government is finally really going to pour millions into developing that area of Jerusalem, the ancient and historical area. A lot's been done since the uh, Six-Day War, but more can be done. The more they dig, the more they find, there are more things of interest. They've uh, uh, allocated money for this project, and... Uh, Annually, the government has a Jerusalem Affairs Ministry, and they'll present a multi-year and annual budget and, and how to implement their program. In other words, they want a serious program on how to develop uh, Jerusalem. And the same is true of the Tourism Ministry. They, they, they're, they're increased the budget to encourage visits to the Western Wall. Uh, for example, today, just to encourage visits to the Western Wall, they invested in 4 million shekel, that would double it to 8 million. So they're trying to make the old city in particular more accessible. And all kind of joint projects between the tour Tourism Ministry, Jerusalem City, the Heritage Ministry, uh, the Israel Antiquities Authority, 
is something called Jerusalem Development Authority and the implementation is what's called East Jerusalem Development Company. And they're all getting together to make a five-year program to upgrade the infrastructure and encourage visits, particularly to the Western Wall Plaza. And that's important. That is the, the homeland of the Jewish heart. And it should be available and comfortable for tourists. And the, uh, by the way, the government is approved something it's called it's establishing something called the Am Olam Center in Jerusalem. It's an, it'll have an interactive learning center, a permanent exhibition. It'll change the exhibitions during the year. It'll have uh, workshops. And uh, it already partially exists in the Western Wall Plaza. I've been there, but it offers all kinds of tours. Some of them just simply virtual tours. So they have the, the committees are being established between the various ministries to develop the city of Jerusalem, the old city, that is. So they want to develop and preserve a serious infrastructure of our heritage. They want to strengthen tourism around the city's historical sites. They want to create innovative heritage spaces that will convey the story of Israel's capital, and which it has been for thousands of years. So it's interesting. Uh, a lot of ministries are involved, and hopefully the, mo the money will be spent well, right? But they want to have people come to Jerusalem, and the, the best way to do it is to make it attractive and educational so that people will, will rush to Jerusalem. Until the Six-Day War, Jerusalem was a backwater in Israel. Very few people came to Jerusalem. Tel Aviv was a big city. Notice it's saying here, Haifa for, for uh, business, Tel Aviv for entertainment, and Jerusalem for thought and heritage. And the idea is now to invest in that heritage to attract more people and essentially to create areas of education so that people will, will really know about the heritage of our, our ancient capital. So a lot of uh, government investment is going to take place. I just found out about it the other day. And, I wanted to share this information uh, with the listeners. Now, I want to switch the subject and uh, include uh, items that are what I call under the radar. You don't see them in the headlines. You don't hear about them on the radio much. We have to look in the back pages of the local newspapers to find them. Uh, but I find that to be very interesting, and I think that the listeners should know about it because they say something about what's happening in Israel. So, for example, it turns out that Israel is selling offensive rocket artillery systems to the Netherlands. The Israeli and Dutch defense ministries have announced the signing of a first government-to-government -government defense export agreement which is valued over $300 million. They're going to supply the Netherlands with a, uh, a precise 
launching system. It's a rocket artillery system, and it's made by ELTA, which is part of Israel Aircraft Industries, place where I used to work. And this is a five-year deal, and it happens now that more European Union countries are looking to Israel to boost their defense capabilities in the shadow of potential future threats of Moscow because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Turns out that Germany is also on the way to acquiring a number of new defense systems from Israel, and other countries in Europe are in a variety of negotiations with the Israeli Defense Ministry. So it turns out the Israeli defense establishment continues to be a source of real national pride and international success for the state of Israel, and it's a money earner. The defense solutions developed by Israel defense industries allow Israel to strengthen the ties with countries around the world, as well as enhancing Israel's global position. Because Israel is a country surrounded by potential enemies, we have developed tremendous advanced technology to, which was also available to sell. And when you sell this technology, earn money to continue developing the technology. So it's, it's sort of a win-win situation for Israel and the countries that buy our products. So uh, this this is something you come to when you think about the fact when Israel came into, into existence, uh, it had a, a, a small army. It had, for all effective purposes, it had no real air force, just a bunch of Piper Cubs. And now we have a defense industry that's developing weaponry that is being sold to other countries. Unfortunately, we live in a, a dangerous world and people need to defend themselves, but Israel is able to provide other countries with the, the means of defense. I'll be back after the break. segment of the program, I want to touch uh, upon a number of uh, subjects. The first has to do with an argument, believe it or not, over the uh, definition of anti-Semitism. President Joe Biden uh, said he's going to combat anti-Semitism by having his government on a new national strategy to deal with growing hatred of Jews. Now, there are those who say that while this sounds like a productive way, 
to address anti-Semitism, which, by the way, is growing in the United States, controversy has erupted over the fact that the president's task force will not base its anti-Semitism criteria on what's called the IHRA working definition. The IHRA is the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and they have defined anti-Semitism. Now, the IHRA is a definition that over 37 different countries have adopted. It's a Hatred toward Jews has manifested itself differently throughout centuries. So the IHR definition, IHRA definition is, according to some people, important to address today's anti-Semitism accurately. Now, what is this IHRA definition? Well, it addresses conspiracy theories about Jews, the notion that Jews have power and control over the economy, over governments, and over the world. This IHRA definition also addresses Holocaust denial, blood libels, dual loyalty, Denying Jews the right to self-determination by claiming by claiming that the existence of Israel is a racist endeavor, racist endeavor, and holding Jews collectively responsible for the actions of the state of Israel, which is kind of interesting. A lot of Jews never been to Israel, not interested in Israel, but are responsible for the actions of the state of Israel. Now. According to some commentators, uh, it seems the White House is hesitating on whether not or not to adopt this IHRA as the criteria criterion for their national task force, which the president is forming, because of its Israel components. Excluding the IHRA would be a huge mistake, according to many, and would again put American Jews at risk. Hatred toward Jews does not only come from the ultra-right or from neo-Nazis. In the last couple of years, there's been a surge of anti-Semitism from the left, not just from the right, and unfortunately, this surge of anti-Semitism is coming from other minority groups. The clearest example of this happened in May 2021, just two years ago, during Israel's Operation Guarding of the Walls uh, at the Gaza Strip. At that time, it was Jews all over the world, not just Israelis, who had to face an onslaught of vicious anti-Semitism including online and physically, in one day alone. The expression, Hitler was right, was tweeted more than 17,000 times. Anti-Semites in the United Kingdom yelled, rape your daughters. Global demonstrations called for the death of Jews and the bombing of Tel Aviv. 
the the um, many people living in Jewish neighborhoods, both in the United States and Canada, were targeted and attacked and received warnings from the police about planned lynchings. None of this is a criticism of Israeli policies. It's plain and vicious anti-Semitism that has absolutely whatsoever, nothing whatsoever to do with Israeli politics. Now, uh, just over the last weekend, more than 550 rabbis called for the Biden administration to include this IHRA definition in their strategy for fighting anti-Semitism. They wrote in a letter to the president, the IHRA is critically important for helping to educate and protect uh, Jews in the face of this rising anti-Semitism. Now, the, uh, there's something called the Nexus definition, which progressive groups are pushing for adopting. And this minimizes the idea that double standards against Israel are anti-Semitic. This, <coughs> this other definition, not the IHRA definition, definition, but this thing called the Nexus definition, argues that paying disproportionate attention to Israel and treating Israel differently than other countries is not prima facie proof of anti-Semitism, and there are numerous reasons for devoting special attention to Israel and treating Israel differently. In other words, this definition of anti-Semitism, this nexus definition, something which, by the way, I never heard of until I started reading uh, reading about it, uh, does not include anti-Israel as being anti-Semitism. Uh, anti so the question comes up is how can the White House claim to address the rise in Jewish hate, but then question what the collective Jewish community is presenting as anti-Semitism. And after all, Israel is the collective Jewish community. Why is it when Jews present what we know to be our manifestations and experiences of hatred, we're forced to fight for people to accept it? The reality is that you cannot effectively combat anti-Semitism without using the IHRA definition. Now, this definition, the IHRA, provides a comprehensive framework that not only identifies the various manifestations of anti-Semitism, but it also guides policymakers in formulating strategies to combat anti-Semitism. By incorporating this definition into the president's task force would have a strong foundation to develop targeted and effective policies that tackle this anti-Semitism, which, anti which is a very multifaceted uh, uh, phenomenon. By encompassing a broad range of anti-Semitic acts, the IHRA definition enables the task force to address the 
underlying hatred against Jews in all its forms, ensuring a comprehensive and holistic approach in combating anti-Semitism. In other words, there, so far there are two definitions, the IHRA definition and the so-called uh, nexus definition. And according to those who have studied this, the IHRA definition is more comprehensive. So what's happened is that many countries and organizations have worldwide have adopted this broad definition by, by the IHRA, fostering a unified and cohesive response to anti-Semitism. And as I said before, it's, in, it's been adopted by uh, over 37 different countries. So it, the... Um, this definition, according to the experts, would empower the task force to confront and dismantle the underlying bigotry, making significant strides toward fostering a more inclusive and tolerant society. In other words, as I understand it, those who argue in favor of this IHRA definition, and the fact, for example, that it should be taught in schools, means that it's not just that it will fight against anti-Semitism in all its forms, but it will essentially make the, the society uh, to which it's being taught a better society. In other words, if you can erase, according to this thinking, if you can erase anti-Semitism from a society, you will by definition make it a better society. And that's something, of course, that most of us can agree with. The, uh, the reality is a ceremony at the White House to honor Jewish heritage. And as I said, uh, I think I mentioned previously, May is, is called Jewish American Heritage Month. I didn't know about it until uh, um, making this uh, program, broadcasting this program at the very end of May. I didn't realize that May was Jewish Heritage Month, but I guess it is. So, um, it, so the argument is that a, a the reality is that a ceremony to honor Jewish heritage means nothing if the White House chooses to ignore what the vast majority of American Jews know to be anti-Semitism. In other words, the IHR a definition of anti-Semitism, which includes hating Israel because it's a Jewish state, is something which is not in this other definition. So, so those who say that the Biden administration is not, not adopting this broader definition of anti-Semitism, that the administration has already failed to tactically Tackle, tackle and delegitimize modern anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism has been around uh, at least 2,000 years. Uh, before that, uh, the uh, Jews had their own uh, nation. So if you didn't like the Jews, it was, it was sort of a national thing. And then for almost 2,000 years, we did not have our own independent state. And now we have an independent Jewish state, and there are Jews all over the world who don't live in that state. 
so the the uh, the definition, the IHRA definition, apparently include, includes uh, uh, the hate of Israel as the Jewish state is a form of anti-Semitism, and apparently this other definition does not include that form of anti-Semitism. So while everybody's arguing now, I shouldn't say everybody, but people who are involved in this subject are arguing about the definition of anti-Semitism. Does it include the Jewish state? If you hate the policies of the Jewish state, are you an anti or you dislike the policies of the Jewish state? Are you an anti-Semite or not? This is apparently the difference between the two definitions. And uh, maybe it's all a play on words, but I just wanted to share this information with the listeners for what it's worth. I'm not quite sure if it's worth anything. Now let's go on to another topic. It's another item here that doesn't um, exist under the headlines, uh, but I think it's interesting. There are a, uh, some new thing called the Institute for Zionist Strategy and national security. Uh, it's led by a gentleman named Mayor Ben Shabbat, uh, who's been in an, a diplomat for Israel for many years. And um, the uh, this organization uh, is uh, essentially it's a think tank. And what what's on its agenda? A range of critical issues, beginning with countering Iran in every way, investment of resources in the growing the Abraham Accords with Muslim nations around us, managing Israel's diplomatic ties with China, Russia, and Europe, reinforcing Israel's sovereign control in Jerusalem, restoring Israeli governance in Area C of Judea and Samaria, and in the Negev and in the Galilee, preparing for the day after Mahmoud Abbas in Palestinian-held areas dies, and it'll be that that uh, Palestinian area will be taken over by one or another um, terrorist group, and reforming the Israeli police and bolstering the Israeli army, particularly the ground forces, in preparation for a possible three-front war. Now, it's very interesting. This organization, which just just came into existence, it's called the Institute for Zionist Strategy and National Security, is, is taking on all these responsibilities or activities, which in a sense, like, are pretty much all the responsibilities and activities of the Israeli government. So now what you have is a, a, a group of Jews, they all become fellows of this new institution, and they're going to focus on major challenges to global Jewish strength, including the high cost of Jewish education, Aliyah impediments, problems to the law return, uh, BDS assaults on the competence of young Jews everywhere, Deficit in, the deficit in the perception of Israel's democratic and Jewish foundation, 
the integration of Israeli Arabs and Orthodox Jews in Israeli society, Zionist and Jewish civic education in Israel, and apparently a bunch of other subjects. In other words, this new group, it seems, is, is, is pretty much parallel to the Israeli government. All list of things that it's going to be involved in are the kind of things that the Israeli government itself should be in, involved in. So I'm not quite sure uh, how this group is supposed to work or who's chosen to be a part of this group. And uh, and uh, so it, it's almost as if a group of perhaps intellectuals have gotten together and they've set up but seems to be an alternative to the Israeli government with everything on its agenda is the kind of thing that the Israeli government is supposed to be doing. It would be interesting, by the way. I don't know who's, I don't know who's going to fund this new group. Of course, I, obviously they're not going to be able to tax people like the Israeli, Israeli government does. But at first glance, and I read several articles about it, it seems that this group of uh, intellectuals and uh, diplomats has set up a group which is sort of parallel to the Israeli government. Now, how that's going to work and integrate with the Israeli government itself, I absolutely have no idea. Nor if I, I have to assume that it set itself up as a think tank to think about all the things that the Israeli government should be thinking about without the, without the impediment of being full of politicians. So, in other words, as I understand the formation of this new group, which is led by a very, very serious person, um, Mayor Bashitvit, uh, uh, who uh, has a very good reputation, he's been in senior positions in the early, uh, I'm sorry, Mayor Ben Shabbat, He's been in serious positions in the government, in his early government of foreign affairs for many years. So it, it appears to me that this new and this thing is a new think think tank that's going to advise the Israeli government how to deal with all those issues and problems that the Israeli government is supposed to think about without the uh, without the encumbrance of being full of politicians just thinkers. So if that's the case, I think it's really a good idea. We'll see how this develops, and I'll keep the listeners informed. In the meantime, uh, the, the, uh, this, this week is the holiday of Shavuot, which is the commemoration of the receiving your Torah on Mount Sinai. So I wish a happy Shavuot to all the listeners. And until next time, take care of yourselves. This is Jay Shapiro.